You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. There was a time in my life where I thought that barbecue was anything that you slap some barbecue sauce on. I thought that ribs cooked in the oven, slathered with barbecue sauce, was barbecue. I thought the chicken cooked on the grill and slathered with barbecue sauce was barbecue. Where I came from, even hot dogs and hamburgers, Lord have mercy, were considered barbecue. And then Vanessa and I moved to Texas, and I tasted real barbecue for the first time. And I realized that what, hallelujah, praise God. I just need to give him a praise right now. When I moved to Texas and I ate real barbecue for the first time, I realized that what I was calling barbecue was not barbecue at all. The, the, the differences between true barbecue, meat cooked with an indirect wood fire, low and slow, that's it. And Bad and sad imitations of barbecue, anything else, could not be any clearer. It was crystal clear to me the difference between the two. The proof of the pudding was in the eating. And so I sought out every chance I had to eat barbecue. But at some point, it was not enough for me to just consume delicious barbecue that somebody else had made. No, I, at that point, had grown a determination to learn how to replicate this goodness myself. And over time, with lots of practice and guidance from some old-timers who were sitting outside of Walmart in DeSoto, Texas, who I went up to and I said, gentlemen, how y'all doing today? And they looked at me and this one man wiped his head. This was in, this was in like September in, in, uh, in Texas. It was hot, hot. An old-timer wiped his brow and he said, boy, it's hotter than a pot of neck bones out here. What can I do you for? I said, when, do any of y'all know how to teach me how to cook barbecue? And they erupted. All of a sudden, you came to the right place. Come on, sit down, sit down. And they instructed me. It was in community with guidance that I began to learn how to cook barbecue. And after a while, I became, I became a good barbecue cook. And even though all my talk about barbecue wasn't enough to convince my people back home, when I actually cooked barbecue for them at the family reunion, then they saw the light. (laughs) Now, in our cultural moment, people think that love is anything involving strong feelings of desire. Attraction is love. Affinity is love. And Lord have mercy, even lust is love. But when you move into the pages of scripture and you taste true love for the first time, you discover that what we like to call love isn't love at all. The differences between true love and bad imitations cannot be clearer than when you come to the scriptures. And once you taste that real love, you can't go back. You can't go back. And not only this, after you taste the true love of God, it's not enough to just consume the love of God for yourself. That's 
you then begin to long for a way to work that out, to show that very kind of love in the relationships that you have with your family and your friends and your coworkers and your neighbors, even your classmates. You, over time, want to replicate the goodness of that love you have tasted. And over time, with lots of practice, and with some guidance from the community, you can become a lover of God and people. Now, many of our neighbors, they may not be impressed or moved with our talk about love, but if we put our love into action, then just maybe some of our neighbors may see the light of God's love and want it for themselves. Today we turn to 1 John to explore the theme of love. If you haven't been with us over these last few weeks, we have been working through a series uh, about why the gospel is good news. And what we've been doing is we have been contrasting or juxtaposing the, the central truths of the Christian faith with their counterparts in the culture to show how everything that our hearts are longing for, everything that we really want in this life is found in the gospel and nowhere else. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to approach this text in 1 John through two points. We're going to, we're going to talk about correcting our love and perfecting our love. Correcting our love and perfecting our love. So let's look at our first point as we think about correcting our love. Now, the book of 1 John comes to us from the Apostle John. And John is a significant apostle. And, and his explorations of love were so deep and so frequent. There's hardly anybody who talks about love in the Bible more than the Apostle John. And it earned him the nickname, the Apostle of Love. In fact, he referred to himself in the gospel as the one whom Jesus loved. Not because he didn't think Jesus loved other people, but because he was so overwhelmed by the fact that Jesus loved him. That he identified as the one Jesus loved. This same apostle, John, was reclining at the table. Some translations of the Bible say laying in the bosom of Jesus on that first Maundy Thursday night when Jesus taught his disciples about love and service. He had thousands of data points on love, big and small, from his personal experience and intimate connection to Jesus in his earthly life. You know, John was in the inner circle of Jesus's relationships. Peter, James, and John were the innermost circle for Jesus in his earthly life. And at the moment that he's writing this letter to the church under his care, their community is struggling with false teaching that has led to divisions. A heterodox faction has denied key doctrines about Jesus, and it's left their community in a, a, a situation where they're, they're questioning their own faith. They don't know exactly what to do. That the faith of the Orthodox believers is being called into question by this heterodox group of people who has denied the deity of Jesus, denied that he's the son of God, and denied that they are sinners. We see this reflected in the letter. 
And these Christians are, they're thrown off. They're being gaslit to use contemporary language and categories. They're being made to disbelieve that they are the real deal because they believe in the key teachings of the faith. They're being threatened and made to feel inferior for their faith. So they need clarity. They need comfort. They need assurance in a hostile context. So John responds by reinforcing the key doctrinal points around the personal work of Jesus. He says, don't, don't get it twisted. Everything that you heard from us, that we saw with our own eyes, that we personally experienced as eyewitnesses, everything that we taught you is true. Stand in that truth. Stand in that faith. Don't let anyone push you off of it. He wants to give them clarity and reinforce key doctrinal points about the personal work of Christ to comfort them and assure them that what they believe is true. But he also gives them this heavy emphasis on the theme of love as the distinguishing mark of the Christian life. The result of what they believe about Jesus. This is meant to explain why the heterodox group of people that left them is being so unloving and so cruel and so ugly toward them. He's making sense of it. In other words, what John is saying in essence is this. If you're going to understand love and live in love, I need to correct your love by orienting you to love supreme. The love that has completely transformed our existence. And look at how he flows. Put your eyes on the text. Let's just flow this a little bit. Check out verse 7. John begins by saying, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Notice that the first thing that John does is address his people as beloved. And he does this repeatedly throughout his letters. Beloved, beloved, beloved. Because John first speaks an identity over them before he calls an activity out of them. This is who y'all are. You are the beloved of God. So let us love one another. Be who you are. And what John is suggesting is that nothing will ever be right with your love until you identify as one loved by God with an inexhaustible love. Your love will never quite get straightened out until you can identify as one loved by God. And John presents God as the source, the creator, and the author of love. Do you see it? Love is from God. The implication here is that love is objective. Love is objective. Love is rooted in divine objectivity. The author, the creator, he determines meaning of what is written and created. You can't go up to J.K. Rowling and tell her what Harry Potter means. She's the author, she determines what it means. God, as the author of love, determines what it is, how it works, and what it means. That's what John is suggesting. Love has a particular significance and shape. In verses 7 through 8, John tells his people that love is an indicator of one's relationship to God. More than assent to a list of beliefs. It's more than a profession that you believe. Love is an indicator of your relationship to God. A lack of love is an indicator of the nature of your relationship to God. Love's an indicator. In verse 8, 
John tells his people that love is transcendent and theological. He says, God is love. And this is, this is one of the most sublime truths in the Christian faith. There is no other faith that makes this claim. God is love. John doesn't say God loves. He does love. John doesn't just say God loves. He says that God is love. He's not just the source of love. He is love itself. Love is not just an activity of God. It's all-encompassing because it is his very nature. So what's that mean? That means God governs in love. God judges in love. God redeems in love. And God's love is not in conflict with any of his other perfections. Now, if you ever want to take me out for a drink, I can talk to you about the doctrine of divine simplicity. Which is to say God is not comprised of different parts where he has to, he has to shape shift in and out of different ways of interacting. No, all of his perfections cohere in one unified way and none are compromised by the others. God is love. And in verse 9, John tells us that true love is expressed. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest. It takes a particular shape in real time. Love is not mere affection or inner warmth or mere attraction felt for others. It is action taken for the benefit of the other. True love is revealed in the context of social testing. And we saw true love expressed, John tells us, when God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. The, the major thing that I want to stick with you this morning is that the Christian vision of love is more than a simple definition. It's more than a simple illustration or a proverbial wisdom or truth. What we get is a robust understanding of love because love is hitched to the person and work of Jesus. You wanna know what love is? Look at Jesus. You wanna see how love works? Look at Jesus. You wanna see how long love lasts? Look at Jesus. You wanna see the endurance of love? Look at Jesus. You wanna see the strength of love? Look at Jesus. You wanna see the fullness of love? Look at Jesus. You wanna see what love looks like in hard places? Look at Jesus. You wanna see how love costs? Look at Jesus. As Christians, we have a never-ending source that always pulls us deeper in to fill out the life of love that we're called to live. In verse 10, we get the real tightening down on John's corruption of our love. This is what he says. He says, verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins, the satisfaction. In this is love, not that we have loved God or anybody else. Do you see what John is doing? What John is doing here is he is trying to move us from a man-centered or anthropocentric view of love to a God-centered or theocentric perspective on love. 
In other words, the contours of love, the significance of love, the meaning of love, the workings of love are to be discovered in God, not in us. And this is love, not that we have loved God or anybody else. We didn't create love. We're not the source. We're not the arbiters of love. And this is where we have to do a little cultural engagement, don't we? We have to do a little cultural engagement to understand what's really going on in our culture. Now, if you look around our culture, you will see that modern culture has struggled to give us reasons for love that go beyond the self. Modern culture has struggled to give us reasons for love that go beyond self-interest. See, modern culture lays on us the responsibility to love, but it does not give us the resources to love. It doesn't give us the clarity to love. This is what sociologist Robert Bella once said. He said, in the modern world, the love that must hold us together is rooted in our shifting subjectivities. I'll say that again. What Robert Bella, sociologist, said is this. The love that must hold us together in a modern world is rooted in our shifting subjectivities. Let me put it a different way. What Bella is saying is that imagine you're trying to build a foundation on a fault line that's always moving. The plates are moving, shifting under the ground. And every time you try to get a foundation, it's broken up. It's broken up. You can't build on that. He's saying it's rooted in our shifting subjectivities. Modern culture takes what you might call a therapeutic approach to love. Americans tend to assume that feelings define love. Don't get quiet, y'all. It begins with the self, not an external set of obligations. The individual must find and assert their true self because this true self is the only source of genuine relationships to other people. External obligations, whether they're from parents, religious authorities, uh, 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 educational institutions, the, the external obligations can only interfere with the capacity to love. In a therapeutic ideology, relational failures are viewed to be a result of failing to fully accept and love oneself. Follow me on this. Therapists try to teach self-love by offering unconditional acceptance and validation. But these validations lack any transcendent moral or ethical grounding. And so the upshot is that they wind up unconditionally validating things that are not valid according to the Christian faith or the moral arc of the Christian framework. So what happens in the therapeutic approach to love? Now, if all that was a little bit too up there for you on this fine Sunday morning, <laughs> let me give you how this works out in the way that we relate to love, what we do to love. What happens in the therapeutic approach? First, love is romanticized. It's the Disney effect or the Valentine's effect, the Cupid effect. Love will be dreamy and idyllic, easy, natural, intuitive, spontaneous, which is why we speak of falling in love. 
as if we're simply passive, waiting for a feeling or, or waiting for some attraction or compulsion to overcome us. And it's, it's the case in romantic relationships, it's the case in friendships, but it's also romanticized with respect to the marginalized. We show up expecting that it all happens naturally and easily. The marginalized are gonna be grateful for what we do for them and they're gonna celebrate us. This romanticized love is then idolized. Love is idolized. You know, the Bible says that God is love, but our culture says that love is God. Two different things. Love is idolized, and what that means is I demand this romantic, dreamy experience of love because I deserve it, and I can't live without it. And what we end up doing is consuming the other by pinning overwhelming expectations and hopes on them. Now, we could, we could demonstrate this in a number of ways. How many of y'all remember that song we did at the neighborhood party? Real love. Uh, I'm searching for real love. Hey, check the lyrics to that song. I've been hoping for someone to satisfy my every need. Won't you be my inspiration? Be the real love that I need. I need you to be my all in all. Now let me tell you something. If you pin all your hopes, if you pin your all in all on another person who's flawed and broken like you, you're going to destroy them and yourself. Because they cannot bear. What happens when you throw that load of expectations on them? They get crushed. Then the relationship gets broken on to the next one. It ends up destroying relational health. And on the other hand, when love is idolized, check it out. If ever love should seem to demand more from me than I want to give, or the relationship hits a rough patch where love is difficult, we then conclude that it's not working. And we can safely retire from that relationship in a search to fulfill our deepest longings through another relationship. Love is idolized. But love is individualized. If you go through America... You will have as many definitions and understandings of love as there are residents. Love is what I say it is. It's rooted in my subjective feelings. But you know what we do sometimes? We get selectively objective. I get objective when I want to confront someone else about their behavior. That's when I get objective. This is what it is. But other than that, it's completely subjective. I determine the contours and expressions of love that suit me. And no one can tell me how to love or who to love. You see? Love is individualized. Love is also homogenized. Which is to say it's turned into something that's only for me and my tribe. People like me. If ever I should show love to an opposing tribe, my loyalty to my tribe is brought into question. Gone is the virtue that you can love somebody with whom you deeply disagree. That category has been taken off the table. It's a, you're either for us or you're against us. That is the culture war that we're observing right now. Love shown towards someone else, even in, in the face of difference and disagreement, is viewed as betrayal of your tribe. 
and we're afraid to transgress the boundaries of our tribes. Love is homogenized. Love is sanitized. Love is all smiles and joy with your people. Not weeping with mourners or being exposed to dangers. Love is safe and tame, not risky and wild. Sanitized love might invite the hood onto our turf, but it's not going to meet the hood on their turf. That's too risky. That's too dangerous. What if something happens to me? I'm the most important factor in this equation. It's all rooted in my subjectivities. Love, in this version, looks like it's looking for the photo opportunity to look good rather than looking for any opportunity to do good. Love is sanitized. Love is commercialized. It's reduced to a useful tool in selling products. We all have heard the phrase sex sells, right? Well, there are all these dreams of love and all these promises attached to products suggesting that this is where real love is. This is what it looks like. And this is how you can get it if you buy our product. I always think about that Lexus commercial. I told Vanessa one time, I said, you don't ever have to worry about finding a Lexus with a bow out front. That ain't how we get down, right? Right, like that's the key. And then, oh, and it's love and it's romance. It's like, there's your love. Sell this product. Love is commercialized. It's cheapened. And at the end of the day, in all these ways, love is compromised. The very essence of love is gutted. It's drained because the modern world gives me full authority to build a life that is all about me. No one can challenge my right to make my life all about me, my needs, my dreams, my happiness, my identity, my self-actualization. It requires of me, this therapeutic version of love, it requires of me little sacrifice, little self-denial, little inconvenience. But if love does not transcend my fluid emotions or my stubborn will, it becomes incoherent. Let me ask you a question. What happens when nobody feels like loving you? What happens when the people around you lack the willpower and the transcendent responsibility to love you? You're left out in the cold. Is that really the version of love that you want? Think about it. Do you really want another person's love for you to be rooted exclusively in their emotions? How many of you are red hot love 100% of the time? What about in your marriage? You made vows. Remember your wedding day? It's dreamy, right? I was a nervous wreck. I was shaking like a leaf. But on that day, oh, it was all affection. It was all love. But if you find yourself today in a place where you are looking for the exit, it's because you probably have a therapeutic view of love. You've taken a therapeutic approach. You've made love all about you and your nice feelings and your warm fuzzies and your self-actualization. It's all about you living into your dream for yourself. 
You see, it's rooted in your changing subjectivities. Changeable feelings are not enough to sustain relationships of love, even with the people we generally like. Much less with the people we don't like that much. Much less with the people that are enemies to us. But we know that the love ethic of the Christian faith is so much more than tolerance. It even goes to the depths of loving enemies. Did you hear what was read in our confession of sin this morning? The assurance of our pardon told us that God set his love on us when? While we were still sinners, when we were enemies. Different paradigm, right? That's the love you want. That's the love you need. That's the love your heart longs for. Your heart was made to receive that love. Your heart was made to live in that love. And you don't really want the therapeutic approach to love for yourself. You don't want the people in your life to take a therapeutic approach to love because when they get tired of you and when you annoy them and when you wear them down, they're done. And you are left in the cold. You want someone that has a transcendent reason to love you. A, 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 a kind of love that knows no bounds, whose depth and width and height and breadth surpasses your knowledge. Emotions, here's the thing I need you to lock in on. Check this out. Emotions often provide a way of escape from love at the very point when it's most needed. When you feel scared or when you feel anger or when you feel dissatisfied, that's the very point at which that person most needs your love. And if you're thinking with a gospel lens, you know that Jesus loved you at the point when you most needed it, when you were most unlovable, when you were least capable of helping yourself, when you couldn't get your way out of the, the jam. That's when love found you. That's what real love, true love, looks like. How, but how does John correct our love? For Christians, love is no longer romanticized or idolized, individualized, homogenized, or commercialized. For Christians, love is gospelized. We're not supposed to passively wait for an emotion to overcome us such that we fall in love. No, we rise in love. We choose to love. We act in love. All in rebellion against our own sinful, selfish, and arrogant instincts. Why do we do this? Because it was this true love completely embodied in Jesus, this gospel love specifically and nothing else that found us and freed us and saved us and adopted us, renewed us and gave us the hope of glory. That's what this love did. And it's that love that now marks the love life that we seek to live. God has done in Jesus Christ what therapeutic love could never do. If Jesus had taken the therapeutic approach to love, there would have been no incarnation because who feels like taking a quantum leap down? There would have been no cross because who enjoys suffering for the benefit of others? There would have been no resurrection 
and there would have been no salvation and no hope of glory for us if Jesus had taken a therapeutic view of love. That's a very significant question to ask yourself. If Jesus had taken my approach to love, where would I be? If he bailed when his emotions were not catching up with some kind of objective standard, where would I be? Lost. And do you see that's why John hitches our life of love to the nature of our relationship to God. That's why he says it's an indicator. How, if you do not show this kind of love, can you say that you know God? John presses that on you. He doesn't relieve the tension for you. He doesn't say, oh, of course you're believers. You walked the plank many years ago. You said the sinner's prayer. Of course you're a Christian. You go to church every Sunday. Of course you're a Christian. You know what? Just because you're in a car doesn't, just because you're in a garage doesn't mean you're a car. And just because you're in church doesn't mean you know this love. It must be socially tested. One of the most significant theologians of the 20th century was once asked, what is the deepest theological idea that you have ever encountered? And what this theologian said without missing a beat was this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Amen. And when you taste this love perfectly embodied in Jesus, it gives you a clear paradigm and a motive for love that goes beyond your feelings, that goes beyond your own self and your self-referential ways. It perfects and matures your love when you come into contact with this gospel love, which brings us to our second point, perfecting our love. Look at verses 16 through 17a. John says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us. Knowing and believing the love that God has for us. And abiding in that love is what matures our love. Do you want to grow in love? This is how you do it. You must know and believe the love that God has for us in Jesus Christ. Abide in that love, and it will perfect, mature. The word is teleos. It comes to its fullness and completion in this way. Listen, it's not enough to know that God loves you. You must believe it. You must abide in it. You must delight in it. You must glory in the fact that he loves you. It's in both the knowing and believing that we begin to connect the dots in our lives and relationships. Oh, if God has loved me this way, then I can love them in this way. I have a paradigm that hits close to home. Because my very existence, my very thriving and survival and joy and hope and peace hang upon this love. I could never betray that love by withholding that same love according to those same dynamics with the people in my life. Knowing and believing the endurance of his love for us is what makes our love endure. 
Knowing and believing the consistency of his love for us is what makes our love consistent for others. Knowing and believing in the strength of his love for us is what makes us strong in our love for others. Knowing and believing the tenderness of his love is what makes our love tender. Knowing and believing the holiness of his love for us is what makes our love holy. Not in the abstract, y'all. Everybody is loving until they got someone to love, right? This isn't just love in the abstract. This isn't just warm fuzzies. This, is not, this ain't like some Care Bears, right? Like some of y'all ain't old enough to know about some Care Bears. This is not that. Sentimentalized love. It's not ethereal. It's not abstract. I'm talking about the real people in your life right now that are hard to love, that are stressing you out, that are depressing you, that are frustrating you, that are making you angry, who ain't treating you right, who are giving up on you. Those people. That's who it helps you to love. And it, it doesn't just... The love of God in the gospel does not just help us to execute loving actions. It actually transforms us into lovers. You see that? There's a difference between loving actions and being transformed in your very being into a lover. When you're transformed into a lover, you're able to flow in love wherever you don't have clarity on the rules. Where it's not a black and white situation, where it's a gray situation, and you are called into the mix of that. When you're formed into a lover, you have gospel instincts that inform the way that you work out love in this situation. It works in the situational. So let's talk about application. I got three questions that I want you to take home and reflect on, okay? I want to encourage you. I think this is potentially a life-transforming consideration. I want you to think about a real relationship that you have right now. It may be a friend, it may be a neighbor, a parent, or even a spouse. Think about a real relationship that is challenging that you're called to love in. And I want you, I want to invite you to reflect on three questions that could transform the relationship, starting with you, not them, okay? First, ask yourself this question. Am I taking a therapeutic approach to love in this relationship? Am I taking a therapeutic approach to love in this relationship? In other words, am I rooting love in this situation, in this relationship? Am I rooting it in my personal subjectivities and emotions and feelings? Or am I responding to an objective standard of some sort? Primarily the objective standard that I held out to you this morning in the passage, the gospel, the good news of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Am I taking a therapeutic approach? approach to love in this relationship? That's the first question. Second question, what would I have to change if I were to love this person like Jesus has loved me? What would I have to change if I were to love this person like Jesus has loved me? It's another way of asking, what, do you, what would you have to stop doing and what would you have to start doing if, you were, if your love was going to more closely resemble the love that Jesus has shown to you? Every marriage in here should be taking this. This is the only way to keep a marriage together. Three, third question. Have I consistently asked God to give me the grace, character, 
vision and wisdom to love this person like Jesus has loved me. What I'm saying is, are you working out of your own strength or are you asking God for help? Three, have I consistently asked God to give me the grace, to give me the character, to give me the vision, and to give me the wisdom to love this person like Jesus has loved me? There are some, some practices of the Christian life that you will never consistently live into until you pray them into your life consistently. Until there is a desperation to you that you so long to be this, to become this, to live into this, that you come before God hungry and needy. And God loves to meet needy people and answer prayers. The love that we see in this text has no exit strategy. Christians look to Jesus to understand what love is, what love demands, and how love works. Jesus, the love of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is our great why. Why we love like this. Why we take it on the chin in the work of love sometimes. Why we deny ourselves, pick up a cross, and follow Jesus in this way of love. Love God Jesus killed. Do with that what you will. Let it work on you. He is our why in every situation with every person we come across. So let us love one another, for love is from God. Amen. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.